Welcome to episode 16 of North of the Shire, and I am here with a man who is the very model of a modern major general, Mr. Andrew Brock. Well, hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. A little tired, but you know, chugging along, singing a song. Friday's a long (laughs) weekend, so we can't complain, you know? Right on. It's, uh, yeah, looking forward to the long weekend. And actually, I sent out a little uh, invite to you and Chris mm-hmm. and and Garrett to see if you guys were available sometime this weekend for the old driveway chat. That's Maybe right. Maybe do a little social distancing the old, uh, chatterino. The old socially distanced chat, maybe a little bit longer, uh, further away than six feet because of the variants that are out. But, you know, hey, you got to work with what you got and you, uh, and you go for it. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, it's been over a year since we've all been together. I think so, yeah. Holy crap. In live and in person, that's for well, sure. Well, I mean, the, the Canadian winter, which is nine months of the year, has kind of made it difficult to stand it's outside not nine months of the year. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, you know, we were frozen over. I got to chip the ice <laughs> off my igloo, you know? <laughs> oh, you're, uh, what do they call that? You're uh, propagating a stereotype there. That is correct. Is that the right word? I, I think so, right yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, let us move on. Uh, yeah, so last time we really put our foot in our mouth and proved we don't know, have any idea about what we're talking about when it comes to Lord of the Rings. And that was, we said that the original director of the Hobbit movies was Benicio del Toro, which of course it was not. We were close. It was Guillermo, I'll have trouble Guillermo pronouncing this, Guillermo del Toro. And he, he's uh, previously directed Pan's Labyrinth, uh, the two Hellboy movies, Pacific Rim, and The Shape of Water. So he's done right. a lot of good movies. But we, we said Benicio del Toro. That just came into my brain. I think you were struggling to think of the name. And I, you said something del Toro. And I said Benicio <laughs> del Toro. Um, also a great actor, Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. uh, Avengers Infinity War, played the Collector. Um, and the two Sicario movies, uh, both excellent movies there too. So anyway, we got those ones mixed up. Yeah, so Guillermo del Toro actually signed on to The Hobbit in 2008 and left in 2010 just because I guess he had other commitments, was taking too long. But I was surprised when I was looking that up. Um, he's actually still credited um as one of the screenwriters for for the Hobbit movies, because of course that's what like he was involved in a lot of that obviously before uh, he left the project. So his mm-hmm. name is actually still mm-hmm. on it. Huh. Interesting. I was surprised that they would go with him versus just not going with um, uh, Peter Jackson, considering how successful Lord of the Rings was. Well, yeah, and I'm not sure of uh, Peter Jackson's initial reasons for not wanting to direct, but you know, eventually he was uh, he was brought in to save the save the production, as it were. Yeah, brought in to save the production, and of course, they gave him enough money to finish off his money castle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anything going on? You're not doing any hobby, I know. It's hardly worth asking because you're so busy with your auditors and whatever at work but. yeah unfortunately the audit in our month end coincided at the same time which is um 
joyous bee. Uh, so yeah, I'm hoping to do some painting. I've been watching painting videos on YouTube in my spare moments. Uh, so I've been building up my motivation to paint again. Um, and I'm excited to do that once work has calmed down to a reasonable, uh, click. And, uh, yeah, other than that, sadly nothing else. Yeah, I still haven't got my, uh, my brushes out again, but... Um, I've continued to work on my little uh, battle company display board that I've been working on. And it's mm -hmm. like a, it's for my dwarven battle company, so it's kind of going to be a Moria sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been, you know, using doing the foam, sculpting some foam and yeah, yeah. using some uh, 3D printed stuff and using my her starts molds. Like I got all kinds of different mediums going wow, on. Wow, nice. So, so I hope it turns out all right. But. Yeah, I know. I know. Chris uh, sent a message to our group today saying, "Hey, I painted this amount of models. What's everyone else looking like?" Yeah, and he's like, "We're all like, we haven't done anything to even the same degree that you've got done." And he's like, "Oh, yeah, he's... I thought I was behind." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely way out in front in terms yeah. of getting models painted. Like for me, it's just uh, like my painting enthusiasm has left me right now, so I'm not fighting it. I'm just taking a break from it. So. Uh, but my stuff is all assembled and primed, mm -hmm. like what I need to paint for my uh, my Dunland army. So once I get back into it, I'm hoping that I can get through it fairly, fairly quickly. The vast bulk of my stuff is assembled and primed, although everything is one piece uh, for the Rangers. So uh, yeah, it should be pretty easy. Um, and half of it's already sort of below tabletop standard. So I'm working my way up there. Those models I find are fairly easy to paint. Um, they're very forgiving models just because the color schemes are as easier. Long, as long as you stick to greens and browns and blacks, you're pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been like doing some Facebook. Like, there's so much Facebook activity around the hobby, around the hobby these days. It's like I've been uh, reading a lot more and. Uh, posting a little bit more in in some of the uh, some of the groups, but mm -hmm. um, uh, one thing I noticed on the uh, competitive group just happened to be reading a couple of uh, posts there, and I was really kind of initially surprised by this one. And um, Jasmine from mm -hmm. the UK, who's a competitive player, she posted on the competitive forum about the top five worst monsters and then there was like a huge discussion thread on it right and like when i read it i was really surprised to see shelob as as one of the top five worst like that's this is her opinion right yeah of course um because like in the previous edition like shelob was like incredibly popular and used to mm -hmm. devastating effect in a lot of lists so i was surprised about it when i mentioned it to you 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 just kind of sounded like you agreed with with that uh i have used shelob in the previous edition to um in a lot of games i should say uh like i was a big proponent for shelob uh in my mortar lists with wraiths uh, and there were sometimes she was hit or miss uh, and that was in large part because if you're only rolling like two dice at most in a fight uh, and you have no might, so you can flub it. And I have seen Shelob flub like five fights in a row against a single warrior who's shielding against her. And it's like, good points investment. 
And then I've seen other times where Shelob will pick up uh, models and hurl them through lines, killing 10 or 12 dudes a turn, or maybe like 10 or 12 dudes over the course of two turns. And you're like, yeah, 90 points, totally well spent. Yeah. The problem I find with Shelob is she's been hit with multiple nerfs. One, um, she can't be spear supported anymore, right? Before, you could have her on the line and you could spear support her with a banner. You've got three dice in the dual roll. If she charges, it's four. All of a sudden, you start getting some reliability. But now it's there's no spear support anymore. So yeah, that sudden, makes sense. It's you know, still a, the, that one extra attack is is big for sure. It's very big. Uh, it's not for killing. It's for winning fights. Yeah, it's uh, for winning the duel. Yeah. Right. The other thing is that hurl. Uh, the direction out, like everything about Hurl has been nerfed, right? And that's what Shelob's bread and butter was. It was Hurl. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, she could pounce on a hero with the fight seven and kill it very quickly if you get the uh, trap. Like, I wouldn't say trap because she has a pounce, but you could kill a defense seven hero with Shelob very quickly with the four dice rerolling wounds. But it was mostly because her strength seven coupled with a, an omnidirectional Hurl, almost, almost omnidirectional, it's more like 180. And, you know, she was strength seven with the D6, so you could get a really long hurl. she plow through stuff. You could throw a cheap hero with her uh, to get, like, a nice hurl combat so she could double hurl. All these things added up for her. But now hurl has been pretty much nerfed into the ground um, as, a, as a brutal power attack. And so, like, a lot of her strengths have been sort of taken away from her, and she hasn't really got anything in return. So that yeah. 90 points seems a lot pricier than it like used to be. Like, you can't double hurl anymore, and no. the directionality of the hurl is very strictly defined now, whereas yeah. before that, combined with her 12-inch move and ability to move over anything because she's a spider, mm-hmm. you always see her run around to the end of a battle line and yeah. chuck somebody, like, right down the, the, the battle line. So it was brutal in previous. So, yeah, it's one you mention all that kind of stuff it, it does make a lot more sense to me um like still I, though i don't know if i would agree that she's one of the top five worst just because 12 inch move being able to move over anything it's and it's 10 inch oh it's 10 okay right. she's well, a spider so yeah 10 inch yeah move. yeah the the other thing is she still has the survival instincts like i I'm like contemplating Mordor lists, so I like sort of do some list building, and she's never in a Mordor list. Whereas right. in previous editions, she would be like my number two, number three hero in my Mordor list. It was a guaranteed she was there. Now it's like, nope, that's 90 points I can't spend. Um, too frivolous. Um, but I think she's really good in a Kirith Ongol list because of her ability to get, um, I think it's like two attacks base. Uh, when she's fighting certain army types or certain race types, and she can like devour creatures to get uh, do, uh, banner rerolls and all that stuff, so I see her as having a, playing a really strong role in that legendary legion. But in like a, a Mordor list, I just there's so many other things you can choose, and she's not one of them. Well, I think the I think the fact is that that her performance is inconsistent. Yeah, I mean one of the reasons why the Balrog, as strong as it is can be a concern as well. Yes, it has four attacks. It does not have might. Having might just allows you to sort of influence those moments where you need the six on a dual roll to win the fight. And I have been on the receiving end of watching my Balrog whiff four fights in a row against, you know, two infantry and two spear support. And it's like, 
you know, it just that's how it came out in the, in the charge, and and counter charge in subsequent turns, and you're just like, yep, this Balrog should be chewing through these things like crazy, but sometimes you get stuck with it and you can't use might to to influence the the, the bad rolls, which is what Shelob has a problem with. Yeah, yeah, it's just the too too few dice in the in the dual roll. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me this week, I, I did spend a little bit more time looking at the the various YouTube groups simply because I have had more time because the virtual tournament that I've kind of been toing or running mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, it's we've put it on hold for a week because our first round of four games is over. We mm-hmm. have had four players advance now to the next round so i figured we'd like leave off for a week and let the suspense suspension build that's right um i I, i'm three and one i'm three and one am i guessing oh are you i am indeed it was uh the last one was chris uh chris versus ben and uh i went with chris because he was running the mordor much respect and uh Watching those two, watching those two like smack talk each other, it's just hilarious because Chris is such a uh, an easygoing guy, and yeah, yeah he's just like his. Yeah, his Ben photo. was I think I think Ben was the first guy to actually uh, post little videos um, to the the chat thread of yeah. him ro- rolling. I'm gonna move this guy now, and I'm gonna roll a dice, and oh, it's a six. I don't know. Like, he, he kept doing that rolling sixes all the time. He, yeah, but he's, he's using those stupid Minas Tirith dice that always roll sixes. So and everyone's <laughs> calling him on it. We're just like, it's the Minas Tirith dice, Ben. They always roll sixes. Get out of here with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think Chris's, uh, the picture of himself was was if I had a voted, I, I, that would have been my vote, would have just been for that picture. Because when he sent that to me, I probably spent about 10 minutes just laughing. I saw the, was, oh my God. I saw the photo and I'm like, you, sir, I've already slanted the decision in your direction by a while. Yeah, by a mile. Like his army list was really good. His army was was excellent or whatever. But mm-hmm. all the focus was on the goofy picture of himself. It just looked like he had just rolled out of bed and his, had his arms filled with all kinds of bottles of various alcohol. And then he uh, countered Ben's video of the rolling dice with just his hand over a piece of paper, and then he moves it and he says, "I win." <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> well played, Chris. Well played. Yeah, and in the previous game to that, after you had said that Garrett was probably going to lose that game to Alistair, oh. uh, who was playing Del Guldur, Garrett was playing Fangor. Garrett ended up taking that one. That was so a close Garrett, one. Garrett was the only good army to advance. That's right. So we had three evil armies, Baradur. I did vote uh, for him, though. What were they? Baradur, Angmar. Ents. Ents, and I just can't remember the, uh, the Moria, very first Moria. game. Moria. Michael yeah, Campbell Michael. Moria. Yeah. yeah, so so evil has uh, got three armies going into the next round versus one good army. Garrett's got his, uh, he's got his work ahead of him. He does indeed. Mm-hmm. He does indeed. If he really wants to beat people like Chris, he's got to step up his photo game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very true, very true. All right, shall we, uh, shall we move on down the road and head over to our main topic? I think so. Mm-hmm. 
Now on to the next segment, Let's Talk About, where we talk about something. Except this time around, we're more doing an introduction for uh, our new segment series that's going to be coming out um, in the coming, I guess, periods or podcasts, where we talk about heroes. And we're in our usual vein, we, we take more of a, a, a top-down approach. And we'll be talking about heroic tears. And I'm not talking about minor um, fortitude, valor, or, or legend. I'm talking about when, when you hear competitive players talk about tier one, tier two, or tier three heroes. That's the or sort of top tier, top tier, mid tier, yeah, or low tier. Yeah, these are the. This is the the, the conversation we're going to have. It's going to be framed around this idea of who are the weak heroes, who are the mid tier, and who are the top tier heroes. What are their characteristics? How do you make the most of them? And how do you beat them? And we'll be using plentiful amount of examples to describe each tier of hero. Oh, that sounds good. I think the thing that I always have the problem with in um, when referring to somebody that's a mid-tier or or a top-tier hero is like where where is the dividing line? Like how, how do you determine the dividing line? Like is it legendary versus valor? Is it like uh, determined by points uh, or or their profile or you know what exactly? Or isn't an exact thing. Maybe it's an inexact thing. I think it, which is something we'll talk about, obviously. Um, but I think it really depends upon the heroes, the factions they're in, and maybe their alliances that they can do, or their effectiveness on their own or synergistically with others. Because having the discussion of, you know, a hero and saying this hero is is a is a top tier hero in this list, but if you stick them in another list or ally them into another list, they become a mid tier hero. So it very it's very situational, and it could also be dependent upon your play styles. But generally, it's around the effectiveness. Like the general idea is, it's the effectiveness of a hero on a tabletop, um, and whether that has a great effect, a medium effect, or a small effect. And that is something yeah, we'll get into more. Like, is your plan to do three episodes on this? One for for each sort of level of. That is the idea, yes. We will talk about uh, top tier, mid tier, and low tier, or tier one, tier two, and tier three heroes. And we will dedicate an episode to each one. No, that's good because, like, I know, like, some armies, um, they don't really have. Uh, some armies don't have top tier heroes. Some armies like don't have any like low tier mm-hmm. uh, heroes. Uh, I think all armies pretty well have a, a mid tier hero. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot we could talk about with uh, with a series like that for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, just to give sort of a, a bit of a uh, an example breakdown. Give us a taste. Give, Give us, us a, a taste. Well, I mean, if you're looking at a top tier hero, you're thinking about Boromir of the White Tower. Whether you're taking him with the banner or you're running him with the lance, i.e. a more cost-effective option, Boromir is clearly a top tier hero. He's got mm-hmm. threes in all the right places and sixes and a six in the most important place. Yeah. He is a fight value six fight, uh, character. He can bring a banner to the table that has a huge synergistic impact upon your army as a whole, as well as giving him a critical fight set 
seven. Uh, breaking that fight six threshold is pretty big. Uh, and he is a definitely a candidate for uh, tier one, right, or top tier. And you're looking at a tier two would be his brother, Faramir. You know, is mm-hmm. a very solid tier two hero, but he mm-hmm. doesn't bring some of the essentials needed to be that top tier, like your third attack, like your third wound, maybe right. higher fight value. Um, but he's still a very strong uh, mid-tier hero. And then you've got your 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 third tier or your low tier, and that is Baragond, uh, who is a minor hero. Uh, and he only has one wound, one attack, and he's got the bodyguard special rule, but he can lead some troops and he can do little things that can help build out your army, but he is by no means someone that you would send up against a mid-tier or top-tier hero. Yeah, and like the, they all have their roles to play in an army, and I think that's one of the really important things too. Is just that you can't, you can't thrust like a say for example like a mid tier hero into the role of a top tier hero, nope. and then be disappointed when they get killed because it's like well, <laughs> he doesn't belong in he doesn't belong in that spot. So exactly. I mean, I mean, we just talked about alerts um, off mm-hmm. off camera. I say off camera. Um, but Lurtz is a strong tier two. You wouldn't yeah. be sending Lurtz up against an Aragorn King LSR who is a strong tier one. You're just asking for a dead Lurtz. I mean, that's just a given. Yeah. Uh, so it's about, you know, this, this series is going to be talking about how to make the most effective use of each tier of hero, uh, how to beat the tiers of heroes, which they'll have some commonalities between tiers. Um, and... You know, we'll be looking at the various tools. I mean, as you go up in in tier level, the tools needed or the resources needed to defeat that tier of hero are going to invariably increase. Right? Is like one of the big characteristics of a, of a top tier hero is, um, you know, three wounds, three fate. Uh, that is a common one, but not exclusion to top tier only. And Killing three wounds, three fate hero that's generally defense six or seven plus is not something that can be done in one shot easily, right? So there's these things that have to be done, tactics that have to be taken, um, pre-positioning and and um, pre-things like shooting at their horses or spellcasting to reduce will. Like these things have to be done to prepare yourself to deal with that kind of hero. Whereas if you're dealing with a tier two or a tier three hero, uh, you can get away with blunting him them very quickly. Yeah, it's like usually you can. Uh, you, you don't need to invest a lot of uh, time and effort into getting rid of them. Um, whereas getting rid of a, a, a tier one hero requires quite a bit of planning, and mm-hmm. sometimes it takes multiple turns to actually wear them down in order to get them off the board. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. So this there is this is the the segment series that we're going to start our newest segment series and don't forget don't don't lose heart we are going to finish up the army type series it's something that we we like to sort of alternate multiple segments that way there's, there's some variety and flavor in our podcast yeah I like that idea um, and what do we have left uh, one or two army types to to go I think so we've got the mobile and I think and correct me if I'm wrong we have the combined arms. I think those are the last two. Right. All right. Sounds good. I like having a plan. Something to look forward to. Exactly. You better get busy writing all that stuff, Drew. <laughs> Pretty much. 
<laughs> it's like, hey, like, hey, Don, I've got this great idea for a new segment, and you're like, awesome, get it done, and I'm like, oh, I just gave myself more work. Oh. <laughs> actually, I think I think I actually want to extend our our army types uh, series by an episode as well, oh. um, just because I we've briefly talked about this um, in our interludes over the the last couple months, but. Um, to me, there is another army type, and I always harp on you because you refer sometimes to combined arms as mm -hmm. hybrid, and I'm like, don't say hybrid. It's not hybrid. It's combined arms because true. to me, hybrid is actually another army type, and because there are some armies, and we've even discussed a few of them, that actually don't fit any of the five or six categories that we've defined mm -hmm. and it's because they're a hybrid it's because they take two or more elements of the other army types that we've outlined and mm -hmm. like they employ them at the same time so they don't dedicate themselves to a single a single uh, strategy they employ two different strategies like we mentioned i think in a recent episode um, the Corsairs, you know, mm -hmm. when you when you build a typical Corsair army, they're actually, you know, they could be a leaf blower mm -hmm. and they could also be a horde. So that's, right. um, that's an example there. But like they they could fit in either category, whereas mm -hmm. some armies don't fit in any of those categories mm -hmm. because they just don't dedicate themselves to any single category. Um but if you split them in half, they kind of combine two different categories. Right. So I would I would refer to those as a hybrid. I, I agree, um, especially when you look at when you involve alliances, right? I mean, we're like we'll take your corsair list for example. Um, you bring the corsair list; it gives you elements of the leaf blower, it gives you elements of a horde. Let's say you then ally in uh, the serpent horde, and you you know push fifteen or sixteen of the Haradrim raiders or the serpent guard on on uh, the horses uh, with Suladan. Well, now all of a sudden you have a very strong mobile element you've just added mm -hmm. to your army, uh, which shores up a lot of the corsairs' weaknesses in terms of mobility. And so yeah. all of a sudden you've now got two or even three army types that are sort of like pseudo versions of it, not fully there, but still elements of that army type. And so all of a sudden you have this uh, very hybrid type of army. Well, well, let's discuss that further behind the scenes and see if we can uh, see if we can uh, come up with enough uh, evidence and material to justify that as a yet again, another army type. Sounds good to me. All right, we are here for all that is gold does not glitter. And we've got uh, a couple of questions from uh, two different listeners. Uh, the first one was a very long question from Simon, uh, which came, he's part of our local scene here. And that was on our, uh, our what do you call it, Facebook page. Yeah, that's right, the North of the Shire Facebook page. If you haven't signed up, give it a like and a follow. Basically, his question was, and I'm going to sort of, uh, what do you call that, uh, truncate this, I guess. Yeah, there you go. Uh, he's talking about shooting, and he mentions the DC Hobbit League uh, had an episode, and they talked about this. And, and generally, it is, um, is shooting too strong in the game? 
Um, and at the very end of his his um, outline, he, he says, I'd be curious to hear what you guys have to say on shooting. Um, do you think it's a problem? And do you have any suggestions or opinions on um, controlling it or how it can be controlled? Mm. Um, well, I, I responded to this, but uh, I did want to talk about it with you more. Um, and, you know, this isn't something that uh, we've taken a new stance on. Uh, no. I remember episode one, I think it was, which where we talked about the meta. We talked about shooting is extremely strong. Uh, we talked about that right back in September uh, because that was one of the few things we noticed right out the gate is that you're seeing a lot more army lists that are able to take the 50%, 100% bow limit. You're seeing a lot of synergistic buffs between giving, that characters are giving um, archers, or army bonuses are giving your archers to make them even more lethal and more accurate, which in turn makes them more lethal. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing this shift away from... Um, the basic rules for shooting. And let me just quickly chat about that. Uh, so one, shooting is the best points investment you can put into your army, without a doubt. Even if you have a standard army that only has 33% bow limit, shooting is the best investment you can put your points in because it allows you to avoid the dual roll and kill a model from afar, right? Which is what we well, talked about. Well, I mean, if you, just, if you just look at the points, like let's say, you, let's say you're investing in 10 bows, which cost yeah. you 10 points. Mm-hmm. And all you need to do to make back that investment is really kill one guy, maybe two yeah. guys. And you're going right. to probably kill more than that, quite a bit more. Yeah. And the only downside to it is, is that you're preventing your guys from being equipped with a shield. But you probably have lots of guys with shields. But, but the problem is... If you're taking a bow, you can give that guy a spear, right? And all of a sudden, he's a back-ranked dude, and it's a very minimal investment to get you what you need. In the previous edition, very few armies had the ability to exceed 33% bow limit. And, I mean, Harad was an exception. And what that did for you was it it created this, the base rules for shooting, we'll call it, where it's 33% bow limit, nothing really synergizes with shooting. Okay, that works. Like that, those base rules work for shooting, because they it is a it is a tool in your toolbox. You can shoot. You can sort of pr- uh, push an engagement, especially in uh, missions like to the death. If you have a banner and some shooting, you never go anywhere. You just shoot your opponent. And it was one of those situations where I may use this only once in a tournament. But when I do, it will be effective and it'll be totally worth the points I invest in this. But it's not a game-breaking strategy to end strategies, right? But now, not only is it easier to find an army that has 50% bow limit or 100% bow limit, whether that's a legendary legion, whether that's an um, army bonus, um, it's also easier to find synergistic bonuses. And I'm talking about doing here, being able to call... I think it's a heroic shoot, which allows you to re-roll wounds. Um, we're talking the betrayer, who as before would let you re-roll poisoned uh, shooting attacks on a 1-2, is now just re-roll wounds. And so all of a sudden, you're getting these synergistic bonuses that are causing so much more lethal shooting phases and so much more uh, bows that are causing um, so much more damage in the shooting phases that people are looking at shooting as an actual strategy to win games and not a strategy to push an engagement. 
And you talked about this before in, in more than one episode where um, a, as a competitive player, you feel like you're obligated to always bring like a protection protection against shooting bubble whether yeah. that be you know galadriel lady of light or um or something similar to that blinding light or whatever paul of darkness from the shadow lord yeah, yeah you need it unfortunately um yeah. you need the solution to um the shooting problem and you uh, you can either bring lots of high defense models a horde of lower defense models uh, but in either of those situations you have to have the ability to cross the table as fast as you possibly can because you need to close the gap on shooting which we talked about with leaf blower um, but the reality is if you're not bringing some form of protection or some form of mitigation to it you are going to lose like in those really strong shooting arms you're gonna lose 10 or 15 models before engagement starts and that's how shooting armies win games by really exacerbating that model count disparity between their army and your army. Yeah, and it's it's funny. Like, there's been so much talk about uh, about shooting, and it's been around all of the talk about um, the legendary legion. Uh, what's it called? The again? Rangers, Rangers of Athelion. And I find it kind of funny um in the sense that shooting like before that legendary legion was released um well actually i guess it was released quite some time ago it just was recently re-released with two new heroes in it um it it may not have been as bad before um, but the addition of the two new heroes it's it's basically added 14 more models to the army list Right, because it added two minor heroes who can each take six warriors, all armed with bows. So um, I don't know points-wise what that did, but I think right now that army list maxes out at just over 600 points. Um, The point I'm trying to get to here eventually is that shooting is more dramatic at lower point levels. And this army that has been introduced into the meta is a low point army and it's a hundred percent bows so it's kind of made a problem or not a problem it's kind of made a situation that exists um even more pronounced because of the addition of this new legendary legion yeah no i i think you can and i and i'm I'm doing it for my challenger list i'm building a 750 rangers of athelion list that is pretty much all shooting with a banner. There's Frodo with the ring. It has all these tools, and it's a really nasty list. You're looking at 50 bows in that list. 50 bows, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty crazy. Um, and But I think to make the caveat um, of shooting is most effective at low points levels, um, I think isn't the case, really. I think staring down the barrel of 20 crossbows at 800 or 900 points is still really terrifying. Um, I mean, even if you're looking at, let's say, Dwin here 
uh, heroic shooting 16 Blackroot Veil vale archers or 20 Blackroot Veil vale archers in, in maybe a thousand point fiefdoms list, that, mm-hmm. that, that shooting phase is going to reap a heavy tally on your force. Not even talking about um, a Haradrim force that's going to pour out a whole bunch of reroll wounds shots because they're in range of the Betrayer. So I still think shooting scales extremely well. The only difference is that it becomes less effective at really high points levels because generally some you're, you're taking an anti-shooting bubble. Whereas at the lower points level, you have to sacrifice a lot to bring that in. Yeah, I guess my, my focus is still on the, the Rangers of Athelion, mainly when we talk yeah. about this. And mostly it's it's out of curiosity, just because like we uh, like I haven't seen it anyways uh, over the course of like a, a season of play, like the impact that it is going to have, like once we, we start playing again. Yeah. Um, I just, the, the, the thing with that army that, that kind of gets me, we talked a little bit before about legendary legions and how, you know, in the description of legendary legions, it sort of says that, you know, they don't get the core army bonus or army mm-hmm. rule generally. Um, but in this one here with the, like this legendary legion, like, Allowing them to go to a hundred percent bows, okay, fine. Um, you know, certainly it's a thematic thing when you think about you think about that list. Like all these guys, when you see them in the movies, is that's what they are. So yeah. they would be a hundred percent bows. Okay, fine. The only problem with it is there's there's really no downside. Like you would think that okay, if you're if you're going to allow a force to go up to a hundred percent bows and give them that, that you would take something away i don't know what it would be but they, mm. they they would impose some sort of penalty but in fact not only do they not impose a penalty they they also give them the experience tracker special rule so they all gain woodland creature mm. so not only do they go you know get the free gift of 100 percent bows but they also get that experience tracker special rule on top of it, which makes them even better with their bows. (laughs) Exactly. And then they get get the ring with Frodo. So that gives them a huge boost against, oh no, a tier one hero is about to charge me. Well, Frodo with the ring will go in there. So that has the fight value. And then Faramir Faramir will charge in. And all of a sudden, wait, so they can handle tier one heroes somewhat? And it's like that wait wait you're shooting you should have a disadvantage well probably the the only unthematic out of place thing in that army list for me is the fact that faramir can still take a horse it's like what doesn't make any sense he should should be able to take a horse to me that 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 is just something that sticks out like a sore thumb in that list that shouldn't be there Right now, I, I think the other component to this, with with shooting being so strong, is that when we talk about shooting in a competitive standpoint, you know, we've talked about this in the leaf blower episode, but it's exacerbated by the fact that when you go to a tournament, most TOs are not putting twenty five to thirty three percent terrain on a table, and so you get this sort of like bowling ball planet where there's almost nothing blocking line of sight. There's none of that stuff. And shooting just gets an even bigger advantage. Um, so that's like, it's not an so easy solution because asking TOs to put more terrain on the table uh, would just bankrupt TOs, you know, and that's just really not fair to them. 
Well, I mean, it's just a, not a realistic solution. It's the easiest solution um, yeah. in some sense. Like in in um, pickup games between friends, yeah, it, it's a it's a simple solution to to this problem. But but in in tournaments, especially in large tournaments, it's it's just not going to happen. It's just, there's just not going to be enough terrain to go around. It's right. just the way it is. Exactly, um, and and you know, I'll even point out one last thing. You know. We talk about the anti-shooting bubble, right? Uh, about how that's that's the, that's the solution to shooting armies, right? These big shooting armies. But the reality is, if you have an anti-shooting bubble, one, you have to take a small enough model count list that you're going to be totally in the bubble. Two, you're sacrificing an incredible amount of board control. Um, three, your opponent's going to say, well, if I'm only hitting on sixes, I might as well constantly be moving if I've got that move and shoot option. And so... With a lot of these missions being all about grabbing objectives that are spaced very far apart and board control, you taking the anti-shooting bubbles sacrifices the board and really telegraphs where you're going at all times uh, and, and, and really gives the, the advantage to a shooting player, even though they can't shoot you as well. So let me ask you this question. Um Again, me focusing on Rangers of Athelion, and mostly just sure. because all the t all the talk is still about that list. Um, so there is another list that's been around for a long time that is a hundred percent bow list, um, and I'm curious why this list didn't incur so much discussion, so much uh, uh, possible opposition to to this list, and that is the Halls of Thranduil. So like the the elves of Mirkwood, yeah. like they they can bring a hundred percent bow, and it's their elves with a strength three bow. So like, why has there not been a, a lot of fuss previously been kicked up around around this army list? Well, one Mirkwood Rangers, that's the hundred percent bow limit, right? So it's not the it's not mm -hmm. the Wood Elf Warriors, it's the Mirkwood Rangers. Yeah, it has to like, be that troop type. Two, they're 14 points. A 14 or 15 points. They're actually very expensive. Three, they're only defense three. And four, with the nerf to uh, stock unseen, um, you just don't see them very much anymore, right? Stock unseen mm -hmm. used to be I could hide behind my battle line and be invisible. But now it's I have to be hiding in terrain. And again, this idea of you have to constantly be moving uh, and they're coupled with there's not a tremendous amount of terrain on the table, you aren't able to really lean into that stock on scene. So all of a sudden it's like I've got my, you know, my maybe my, maybe my, my 15 or 20 um, Mirkwood Rangers uh, and all of a sudden I'm having a shooting battle against maybe someone with 12 or 16 bows themselves. But they're standing behind a battle line. They maybe have an anti-shooting bubble. But the reality is, once they start shooting at me, my, my defense three guys are going to drop in droves. And those are really expensive models. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like we're being very critical here, but um, it's not the intention. But we also mentioned, is there a way to, to control this? And as far as, like, from a rules designer perspective, like, I do see one sort of control that um, they seem to be employing on uh, when it comes to giving armies more than 33% 
bows. Yeah. And that is that there are a couple of um, sort of exceptions to this, but generally there aren't any armies that can take more than 33% that have a bow that is greater than strength two. So like all of the armies pretty well that can take over 33% with a couple of exceptions yeah. are our strength two, right? The exceptions being the one we just talked about, yeah. um, which would be a very small, um, what's that called again? Thranduil's Halls of Thranduil with the Mirkwood. Yeah. And the other one, of course, would be um, if Elrond was leading a list, you know, of, uh, say, Rivendell Knights. He can have, with the exception of himself, he can have 100% bows on his warband, mm -hmm. which at a small enough point level, that could be 100% of your army. All right, so are there any other ways that, that uh, shooting could be curtailed, could be wrangled in, could be made a little bit more reasonable? Well, I think um, you know the most obvious would be to decrease the shoot values where appropriate, right? Those that are shoot value three become four. Those that are shoot value four become five. And I say where appropriate, right? Like I wouldn't make elves shoot value four. Um, I would also other way could be like to increase the cost of models with ranged weapons uh, or with shoot values. So maybe like ranges of Athelion become ten points a model. You know, so all of a sudden getting that like big wall of models uh, in your force or getting an Isengard um, crossbowman is a little bit more expensive. Um, the other option is to maybe just increase the cost of ranged weapons, right? Um, like the, the idea I had was like a strength two bow at 18 inch range is one point. And then anything above that sort of as incrementally costs more, like an extra six inches costs an extra point, maybe an extra strength value costs an extra point, move or fire subtracts a point. So what you end up having is that elven bows would cost three points, crossbows also cost three points. You know, so it's not significant leagues more, but if you want to take three, uh, or you want to take like, let's say 12 elven bows, you're looking at 36 points, which all of a sudden, as you start adding these points, becomes a, a substantial investment. And then you have to start second guessing how much you want to invest. Yeah, like I think when we were talking earlier and I said, you know, the thing about the Rangers of Thillian, when they bump them up to 100% bows, I would expect them to receive a penalty in return for the gift of 100% bows. Yeah. And, and, the, and the most logical penalty is to reduce the number of models in the army or reduce the size of the army. It's a skirmishing force. It's an mm -hmm. ambush force after all. You know, it should probably be smaller. The easiest way to do that is what you're talking about. Increase the points of the models. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I was thinking of is that um, make in the ways um, uh, harder for shooting through your uh, battle line. You know what I mean? Like right now, mm -hmm. if I'm shooting at those juicy archer targets in the back, if I'm shooting at a um, guy on a horse, uh, it's a four plus, right? But when you think about it, it's just a mass of bodies in front. To say you have a 50-50 shot of missing them and hitting the guy in the back, that's a big stretch to me. So I think one of the ways to sort of curtail that is to say maybe shooting through the next rank uh, is a 5-plus instead of a 4-plus. 
and then maybe shooting at mounted models, it's a one to four to hit a regular mounted model, or a one, sorry, a one to four hits the horse, a regular horse or an armored horse, mm-hmm. and then firing at, say, those monstrous mounts, a one to five hits the monstrous mount, and a six hits the hero. So all of a sudden you're giving um, more protection to those behind the battle lines, and you're making that front rank shield wall all the more important. Yeah, because you mentioned it's really easy to get past the front rank, and like especially with uh, heroic accuracy. Yeah. You know, with heroic accuracy, you're you're basically increasing your chances to get hitting the back rank to seventy five percent. You know, which um, pretty much makes the front rank negligible. Yeah, it it becomes you know it's not an automatic, but it's it's highly likely you're going to get through. Which you know you are spending a point of might, but. You're spending one point of might and you're potentially shooting, you know, maybe you're shooting 10 archers that all have the benefit of that heroic accuracy. Yeah. Um, you're going to get a lot of shots through the back rank with that. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe make it so that heroic accuracy only works on natural in the ways and not on infantry. You know what I mean? Right. Um, because during the, 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 the flow of battle where these these ordered ranks of, of guys with shields that are almost the entire length of their body um, to suggest that I can aim down the barrel of my bow a little bit better and and dodge him 75% of the time is sort of ridiculous. Whereas the it's barrel like of my bow. The barrel of my bow, which happens to be the arrow. Uh, like but, it. you know, firing past a tree, okay, if I give myself more of a chance to steady that, it's a stationary target. Uh, or a stationary obstacle, I should be able to bypass it a lot easier. Well, shall we move on uh, from the shooting? We do have one other question to answer. And we're probably so. we're probably getting uh, long on time here. I think so. Uh, we we've had another question we've had for a bit here. It's it was a fairly long sort of three part question. So I think we're we're gonna just uh, chop it up a little bit and maybe just go with the first two parts. It's from Michael Campbell. Yep. And. Uh, I'll ask the first part of the question first, and then after we answer that, I'll ask the second part. Um, Given that theme is often used as an excuse, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. to add more special rules to the game, Mm -hmm. which unique special rule do you think adds the most to gameplay whilst simultaneously enhancing the theme so adds the most to gameplay while simultaneously enhancing theme i would say for me gave us i gave us a good thought and i would say probably the ants army bonus don't be hasty um i love this army bonus because it makes the ants a viable force on the battlefield they're not top table but they're definitely mid-tier i would say and in large part because of this army bonus well, I think it, like when they introduced all these army special rules, I mean, this special rule is one of the ones that was sort of like, you know, flying from the rooftops. You know, this was one of the really good examples of a really thematic and really good in-game of effect that makes this army far more competitive uh, or competitive competitive than it was previously oh yeah i mean like if this army didn't exist uh, you would do what you did last edition which was transfix ent wrap it kill it 
transfix that, and you just keep doing it, right? But yeah. now it's transfixes don't work. Black Dart does, but you're still Black Darting a Defense 8 model with three wounds, and Black Dart's not easy to get off. So, <laughs> like, all of a sudden, magic plays a much lesser, uh, plays a lesser effect on Ents, which was a big, uh, w- a hard counter for them. Uh, yeah, now, now with that one, you're kind of forced to um, surround Ent and Heroic Strike and just hope that you end up getting higher than, than the Ent. Exactly, because if you surround an Ent with like maybe four or five or even six models in combat with it and it wins the fight, you better believe it's going to use its um, a, a brutal power attack to pick up models and smash all six of the guys that's in combat with to death. Uh, yep. So Ents are scary in combat if you don't have the right tools to beat them. So the, other, the, the thematic point to this is that the, the, the Ents, when they get moving, are just this sort of like uh, implicable, like relentless moving onslaught. And this rule really conveys that quite beautifully. They become an unstoppable force. That's right. For me, uh, I, I, looked th- I looked through all of my books uh, on this one because I thought it was a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that I came up with uh, for this is the Mordor Army Special Rule. Mm-hmm. And it is called Our Enemy is Ready, His Full Strength Gathered. Right. So this rule says, whilst, there's that word again, whilst you have more models on the board than your opponent, friendly Mordor warrior models gain plus one courage and may re-roll ones to wound when making strikes. So um, I, I really like this rule for like a number of reasons. One that I like it is there's nothing automatic about it. Um, it it's not overpowered, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like, you know, if this happens, your guys automatically do this or pass this test or whatever. Um, So there's nothing automatic about it. Um, And what I like about it, it it really encourages the Mordor player to take Mordor orcs, the Mm -hmm. lowly Mordor orcs, which I think are really poorly represented on the Middle-earth battlefield, Mm -hmm. like compared to what they should be. Um, so like in that way, I think this rule is very thematic because orcs are like the main opponent of good in the game. And you don't really see a whole lot of them on the tables, really, mm-hmm. compared to what you should. Like even when you see an army that has orcs, you generally don't see a lot of orcs. Mm-hmm because they take other things the other thing i like about it too is it gives two bonuses not just one and they're small bonuses but for this army i think they're both very useful bonuses that really add to to gameplay giving giving orcs plus one courage is a gigantic bonus for them um, and then being able to roll, uh, re-roll ones to wound for a strength three model is mm-hmm. is also very a valuable bonus, but it's not OP, right? Mm-hmm. So th- that's what I would give for that one. I would actually counter that from a competitive standpoint and say this army bonus, if you're going to lean into it with the goal of mm-hmm. trying to maximize it every time, this army bonus is amazing for Black Numenorians. Like, amazing for them. And it's because 
they're a nine point model that you can spam out quite well. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can get more models on the table than your opponent, you have a fight for model that always faints without reducing its fight value. You cause terror with the neg one because you're almost always going to have a wraith around you. You have courage five all of a sudden, so terror doesn't really play a big part in you know your army strategy. And so this army bonus takes the black Numenorian and removes a lot of Mordor's weaknesses, which is the low courage, uh, the low fight value, and gives you a really solid battle line. So it creates that opportunity to build up this sort of like elite horde that is has very few uh, weaknesses in the sense that it's it's a well-rounded force. Yeah, forget that idea. Take the more <laughs> Black Numenorians, then Moran and Orcs with shields and spears in the back. <laughs> okay, let me ask the second part of this question. Right. Uh, conversely, which unique special rule requires the greatest suspension of belief regardless of their impact on the game? Hmm. Which unique special rule requires the greatest suspension of belief regardless of their impact on the game? I'll let you answer first. Well, I've already answered this question. And I, I, just, I, like, I, I just can't get past it. I just, I, I, just, I just cannot get past that, that one. And yeah, it's, it's um, what is it? Bane, son of Bard or yeah, whatever. Bane, son of Bard. Yeah, like that rule, just it's actually two special rules. It's one special rule that the sisters get da, get da down here. Uh, and then uh, Bane, son of Bard, special rule, family bond. Both those special rules can add plus one to his fight value to a model that already has a fight value that is too high at three. Yeah. Right, his fight value should be two, and he shouldn't be able to get plus two. He should be able to get plus one and become a fight three model at best. And don't forget that when he's in range of both sisters, he also gets free hero combats. Don't even go there. <laughs> for me, the most for the most ridiculous army special rule that doesn't that defies belief is the Angmar special rule. I'm sorry, it's stupid, and not that it's specters in range of orcs um, cause terror. That's not the issue. You're not supposed to call stuff stupid anymore, you know, in this day and age. Oh, what are you supposed to call it? I don't know. Okay, well, it's... You're supposed to make it less controversial, you know, more friendly. No, we're going to go with stupid on this one. It also holds the record for the longest name for a special rule. Oh. I think it's got to be. Okay. Now, this rule name is... If that fell kingdom should rise again, Rivendell, Lorien, the Shire, even Gondor itself should fall. That's the name of the special rule. Yikes. Friendly Angmar orc models within three inches of a friendly spirit hero model gain the terror special rule. So, so what's so wrong about this rule? So I feel like this rule is very unthematic because I feel like it's a half-finished rule. So... If I were an orc in Angmar, and I'm within three inches of a spirit, I all of a sudden cause terror, right? Amplified effect of, you know, being near a spirit, other creatures find me terrifying. And yet, I live near these spirits all the time, but I'm still only courage two. 
I still struggle like all heck to charge something that causes terror, yet I'm around spirits all the time. Uh, and I'm the only evil army that has a shaman that doesn't cast fury. I'm sorry, it's just really silly. I like it to say that Bob the Orc, who's around spirits all the time, can't have some added resilience by being like, yes, this isn't the first time I've seen a spirit. It's still scary, but I'm not so bothered by it. You don't give it like plus one courage or you don't give it fearless while it's within three inches of a spirit. You know what I mean? Because it's like, what do I be more afraid of? You, the dude in front of me, or the spirit behind me? You know what I mean? Like it should almost be like that the... The aura of terror that the spirit causes also sort of bolsters the orcs, making them fearless against terror. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah, like, it, it like, does seem kind of out of place. Like it, it, it doesn't seem to have a good fit. Um, I like the idea of them getting some kind of bonus within three inches, but mm-hmm. them also causing terror doesn't really like i just can't imagine it in my mind's eye like why that model would all of a sudden become more scary just because it was near a scary model Mm -hmm. like and and if you're like well it's in being imbued with its scary essence but i'm like but it still has the courage of poop and runs away at almost anything so you're telling me that they're afraid of of terror causing models it just doesn't make any sense like like them giving off the aura of terror should also sort of bolster their courage a little bit even if it was plus one courage you know what i mean or even if it was like they get to re-roll courage tests with when they're within three inches exactly something like that um would go really well to that theme of like they're an army around spirits all the time they should be able to handle spirits i mean for example the watchers of karna they guard against the spirits and guess what to charge terror causing models they get plus two to their terror to, to their courage value right so that already exists in the game why not just give it to the orcs all right well that is that question answered i think and those represent the last questions oh no we did get one more question this past week mm-hmm. but we're down to a single listener question but anyway let's move on to the next segment All right, we're here for What Have I Got in My Pocket, Andrew's favorite segment. That's right. He is, as he is wont to say. It is my favorite uh, segment. You know, you don't <laughs> always have to say all right, because it clearly denotes that we've stopped the podcast to collect our thoughts and we started back up. Well, it has been a few <laughs> days. So. That is true. That is true. All right. It goes back to the all right. <laughs> Do you have a question ready for me? I got one ready for you. I do, I do. Okay, let me ask you my question first. That's right. All right, I'm going back to your your favorite Uh trivia questions. You're not joking. It's not not trivia questions, but they are questions. Name me the ages of all of these people. (laughs) I'd be like, nope, uh, end podcast. Actually, you know what? You're very close. You're very close. Okay, it's a two-part question. Oh, boy. Okay, the first part 
is I'm going to name four actors that appeared in the movie The Lord of the Rings. He seriously is doing this? I'm doing this. Okay. still trivial. And I want you, or sorry, I'm going to name four characters. I want you to name the actors, which will be easy because I've picked very gettable ones. I guess two of four, I'll get this. Okay. And then once you have the names of the actors, I want you to put them in order of oldest to youngest. If, I hope Sir Ian McKellen is on this list because then I got <laughs> a shot is, at least one of them. He is not. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, okay. Here they are, okay? Okay. Legolas. Okay, Orlando Bloom. Right on. Pippin Took. Pippin Took. God, I don't remember. You, you have the actor's name, right? Or do I have to guess it? I have the name, yeah. Oh, I have to guess it? Yeah, you have to give me the name. Yeah, oh, that's, what, that's what this is. Pass. You're going to pass? Okay, <laughs> come back to that one. Samwise Gamgee. Oh, my God. I would say I could see his face, but I don't know his name, but that doesn't mean anything because they're movie stars. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Pass, pass, pass. Okay, last one is... Gollum slash Smeagol. Oh, this is killing me. You know all of these names, I'm telling you. I probably do. I just cannot, for the life of me, remember. Uh, Give me hints. You got to give me hints. You can't be throwing stuff. We talked about this. (laughs) We'll go back for some hints. Okay, so Pippin took. The initials are BB. Billy, I don't want to say Boyd. It's correct. Billy oh, Boyd. Hey. Billy Boyd is correct. We got two out of four with okay, an you assist. Got two. <laughs> okay, Samwise. Samwise. Mm-hmm. The initials are S A. S A. Oh, Sean Austin. Yeah. I think it's just Aston. But. Oh, Aston, okay. Okay, Gollum is the reverse. It is A S. Mmm. Andy Circus or Sirtis? See, you knew them. You knew them. They were all gettable. You, you gotta what did give I tell me a little you? bit. Little, it's on the tip of my tongue. You gotta give me a little bit. A little taste. <laughs> okay, so the actors are uh, Orlando Bloom, Billy Boyd, Sean Austin, Andrew Circus. Okay. Now I want you to put them in order of I... the oldest to the youngest. Oh. Which of those? Actors is the oldest Orlando Bloom, Billy Boyd. Okay, here we go. Here we go. I'm just gonna roll it because I have no clue. Circus, I have no clue. I'm just gonna roll it off. Here we go. Uh, Andy Circus, Orlando Bloom, Sean Austin, and Billy Boyd in that order, oldest to youngest. Say it again Andy Circus, Orlando Bloom, Sean Austin, and Billy Boyd. It's probably wrong, but I'm going with it. Cards on yeah, the table. You're, you're, you got the first one right, but the rest are all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Andy, Andy Circus is the oldest, born in 1964. Yeah. Okay. So I figured I'd get that 56, right. I figured two I'd years younger right. than me. He had some salt and pepper while he was filming, so he I did. figured. <laughs> he did. <laughs> Surprisingly, because he was the, the youngest of the hobbits. Mm. Billy Boyd is is the second oldest of those. Really? Yeah, born 1968. Holy cow, only five years younger than Andy Serdis. 
Four oh. years younger. Four years, okay. Yeah. And good. then it is Sean Astin, 1971, mm-hmm. followed by the youngest is Orlando Bloom, 1977. There you go. Holy cow. There you go. So you did okay. Yeah. Now, my question to you is, where would you place yourself in that list? I am the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm older than all of those guys, even older than Andy Circus, but not older than Gollum or Smeagol. Okay, okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> there you go. There we go. And for the read for the listeners, I would be placed young at the youngest. You yeah, you I'm would be six what years were you, nineteen eighty three? Yeah, I'm six years younger yeah, than Orlando Bloom. Yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. All right. That was good. I like that. Something different. Something, Something a different. different. I appreciated I that. I told you, I got there four for four. Three of the four were an assist. One of the four <laughs> was a legit I got without any hints. Yeah. Uh, you know, so not Those are bad. the kind of things that if you have a few minutes to think about it, um, you'll eventually come up with them. But if it's like under pressure, give me the answer right now. Yeah, forget about it. I know, I know. Not happening. Yeah. Which is, you gave me the initials and it was enough. So I knocked him off. I felt pretty well, good. Well, Billy Boyd is, is doable. You well, know, I said I Billy. Th- I think uh, he's guessable for sure. I, I said Bill. You said BB and I said Billy and I thought Boyd, but I'm like, it can't be Boyd. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, okay, I'll just guess Boyd. <laughs> anyway, so let's get to your question. All right. Now, you've already ribbed me about the correct pronunciation on this before we started the segment. But <laughs> so I shall say it correctly, hopefully. Uh, tell me about your Tolkien beginnings. Because it's not Tolkien. Yes, correct. What do you mean, my Tolkien Tolkien beginnings? Oh, what 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 spurred you into the lore of Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, um, the games, the movies, the whole shebango? Now walk me through it. Well, it was. Um, it's all about reading the book. I think for the first time is 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 basically. The beginnings of of all of that right so i guess yeah. that's what it is um when i first read lord of the rings the book uh-huh. the big mighty tome of lord of the rings now did you read it when they were three separate books or uh, by this point was it already one uh, i actually the copy that i read um was three separate books mm-hmm. um since then like the copy that i have now is is the one omnibus but yeah, like I can tell you about that. I, I don't, I don't know. It's it's kind of a reading Lord of the Rings for me is by far the beginning. Like I had seen The Hobbit, mm-hmm, right? The the animated, and I think the animated version of Lord of the Rings, the the first movie that was out, was in late seventies. I'd seen that too. I think that was late seventies. I think so. Yeah. So I had seen all of that, but by far it was reading the book. That was all my my beginnings, but um, it depends if you want me to give like a the very brief answer. Or I want the... you to give me the long winded one. <laughs> you subject me to these friggin' sur- uh, like quizzes and surveys. You give me the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, like uh, I'll I'll give you the longer one, but just as a warning, like this is uh, going to be a little self indulgent and not necessarily well it has nothing to do about MESBG. So. You know, if you're here, feel free to feel free to fast forward to the end if you're not interested <laughs> in this part. 
Uh, but yeah, like I, you know, I was uh, 18 when I read Lord of the Rings. But mm-hmm. like for me, Lord of the Rings, it was it was not just reading the book. It was a huge like watershed moment for me in my life at the time. So it's like that's why Lord of the Rings, the book and now the game has like stuck with me so much. Um, and I always read the book every year um, just because when I read it, it was it was just that it was a watershed moment for me. Like when I was I was born in 1962. So in 1970, I was eight years old and 1980, I was 18 years old. So mm-hmm. basically I grew up in the 70s. Right. And I read Lord of the Rings in when I was 18, 1980. Um, actually, no, it was, uh, 1981. It was the beginning of 1981. Um, but it was a big deal to me because like at the time I was 18 and like a lot of people that age, kids that age, like you're going through a lot of different things. It's a lot of stress on you, Mm -hmm. a lot of decision-making to be done and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and (laughs) Uh, I don't know how much I want to get into it, but like, um, I have three older sisters. Okay. And my Mm -hmm. parents are immigrants. Like, um, they came to Canada from England. They're all from London, England. I was the only one born in Canada Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they had a lot of stuff going on. My mom and dad, like they came here with basically the clothes on their back. So by the time I I came around, you know, they'd already raised three kids, come to a new country, you know, single income family, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So, so for me, it was, they pretty much left me alone when I was a kid, like to my own resources, like they were great to me and wonderful parents and all that. But, you know, for me, as long as I wasn't like burning the house down and I was passing all my classes mm-hmm. um it pretty much left me to my own resources right mm-hmm. and you know as far as school went like i was pretty terrible in school like i was like a c a c average kid with you know the odd b and the odd d mm-hmm. <laughs> right was i was pretty poor in school um but like when i was probably 16 years old and my dad obviously was like a very intelligent guy when I was 16, I, I think he sort of figured, geez, I better get this kid <laughs> doing something. So, so he kind of like introduced me to reading and he got me, he talked me into reading um, the Hornblower series by C.S. Forrester, good Englishman, mm-hmm. you know, gets his son to read uh, C.S. Forrester, mm-hmm. um, which I imagine you probably haven't read any of it. I've heard that Sean Bean played, I guess, the main character in uh, the TV adaptation. Sean Bean? Is it? No, uh, you're thinking of Sharp. Oh, that's that's, that's different. Yeah. Um, uh, There was a TV version of the Hornblower series, though, but Mm -hmm. he wasn't in that anyway. Um, But yeah, like I I read those books um, and I was shocked at how much I liked it because I was into history. But Mm -hmm. um, so when I read that, I was I was really blown away by by that series of books. And then I went on to read other books. Like there's another series um, about a character called Richard Belitho by Alexander Kent. Mm-hmm. And he's got like, there's probably three or four times as many books in, in that series. And like just sort of read those over the years as well. So started really reading a lot. And you know, that basically got me into reading. 
Right. But anyway, like reading was kind of down on my list of things to do at the time because I was like a teenager and out having a good time. So sitting inside reading all the time wasn't my my top thing. And like back then there was like there was no computers or Internet or cell phones or anything like that. So it was all about hanging out with your friends outside. Um, We played hockey a lot in the street and, you know, you're a teenager. So there's girls and, you know. Um, we were occasionally up to no good as well at that point in time, you know, we used to get into a little bit of trouble, but nothing too bad. Um, but like music was big back then. And I know it's big now too, for anyone that's that age as well. But like at the time, um, I kind of relate it to nowadays, um, music for, for me and my friends and generation was like computers are now to mm. to kids like in in my day there was there was no computers there was no video games so the equivalent back then was your stereo right, right right like everybody had like you know how big were your speakers how awesome was your stereo setup you know and in the 70s there was just like a huge abundance of awesome music to listen to mm-hmm. um which we did you know we listened to you know, Pink Floyd or the Stones, or we were into the Who and uh, Bruce Springsteen, late seventies stuff. And um, everyone, even though their, they, everyone what's thought that? Their, everyone thought their generation was the best in terms of their yeah, music. exactly. Like that, like everybody even now has has their favorites, but back mm-hmm. then that's who yeah. who we were listening to at the time. And even though the Beatles broke up in 1970, like mm-hmm. through the seventies, the Beatles were just huge, like on the radio. Um, like you, you couldn't get away from them. They were, mm-hmm. they were still all over the place. And of course I've talked about Led Zeppelin many times before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And like the, they were the band that kind of, that kind of owned the seventies. Oh, yeah. Like they put they put out their first album, I think in 1969, their last album in 1980. And I think every year through the, the, the seventies, they had a, they had an album and every one of them was a hit, mm-hmm. you know? So music was a huge part of my life, like of my buddies and, and, and I, and, you know, we used to go downtown and line up for concert tickets and, and, uh, go to concerts and all of that kind of stuff. And it was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, um, you know, I kind of realized as I was getting older that like all this sort of fun was going to eventually come to the, come to an end. Right. And like a lot of people that age, like I had no clue of what I wanted to do yeah. in, in my life. Right. And up until then, like I said, like my marks were terrible in school and like I spent most of my time like outside hanging out with my friends and and all that kind of stuff. Um, so like I I hadn't really started working yet. So I like I didn't have any money for for school. Um, like I, I was the fourth kid in in a family, so I didn't expect for my parents to pay my way mm-hmm. through university or college. Like I never even dreamt of going to university. Uh, you know, maybe college was a was a possibility, but at the time it was you know not <laughs> not looking real promising. Yeah. Um. So I was kind of like confused or you know like upset about the 
prospect of moving on from my teens, I guess, like a lot of young people are. Um, and I was kind of confused and, uh, like unsure about what, like a, what I would end up doing, you know, like I didn't have any ambitions to be, uh, whatever, you yeah. know, um, perfectly normal situation for most a lot of 18 year olds i would think at the well time. i mean you're, you're telling them to make a pretty fundamental decision at 18 with relatively yeah. l- short life experience <laughs> well yeah and it is kind of crazy that you know it's life right like you have mm-hmm. to sort of make a decision like at that point in time and you have to sort of pick your school or pick your course and like all of that kind of stuff and like for me like I didn't really even have any prospects of going on to secondary education yeah um but at the time like I when I was eventually when I was 18 like I used to get really stressed out thinking about it um and like I would you know the more I would think about it is like I would get more and more wound up about it like the pressure of it yeah Right. And, you know, just probably because I wasn't used to dealing with that kind of situation because I was all about just like having fun at Easy that point going. in time. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> but the older I got, like that seemed to get worse for me. Um, and I don't know, sometimes it like it would get so bad, like I would get so stressed out about worrying about it and what I was going to do, you know, uh, like I just didn't know what to do about it. Um, and it was at that time that like, you know, having having music and uh, my favorite bands and all of that, like the music really helped me sort of get through it. Like when I was really stressing about it, mm-hmm. like I would I would listen to my favorite songs and all of that to relax me, I guess. And and um, it helped a lot. And like I was only 18 years old, so I like I didn't know um what was going on mm-hmm. um I, I didn't know any different like this is just all how it had been for me and like you know this kind of stress for me um was normal at the time and i just sort of managed it at, at the best i could i like i didn't know if anything strange was happening i was only 18 years old mm-hmm. right but like i didn't realize it at the time but what i was dealing with was i was like starting to deal with some mental health issues at the time mm-hmm. and back then of course it was like knew nothing about like mental health issues it was just you know this is just the way it is this makes me feel bad so don't do this yeah, right? yeah exactly like you know that's how you deal with it and like it probably wasn't until you know, maybe 10 years later that I ended up getting diagnosed with like a mental health condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, that's another story entirely, which mm-hmm. I have no issue talking about that, but there's, it's not about that really right now. Mm-hmm. So, so when did uh, Lord of the Rings come into play here? It was about this time? Well, yeah, like what happened was right at this time, um, so like, I'm sort of stressing about all this kind of stuff. Um, I think it was 19, it was 1980 and it was in September. Um, so Led Zeppelin's drummer, John Bonham died. So mm-hmm. like, they're like on like a decade long sort of role, basically mm-hmm. sort of the number one band. And even at the time, like they weren't my favorite band. I didn't listen to them a ton, but they were all over the radio and you couldn't get away from them. And mm-hmm. I did really like them. But when John Bonham died and the band immediately announced that that was it, they were done. And it was, it was a shock, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, but again, not my favorite band. So it was like, holy smokes, this is a really big deal, right? 18 year old kid. And it's like, you know, um, well in December of 1980, John Lennon got killed. That's right. Right. And it was, that was like devastating. Um, not just to me, but like it was, you know, that line in star Wars, what is that line? Uh, like Obi-Wan says like i felt a disturbance in the force mm-hmm. you know yeah, uh, like millions of voices cried out or whatever mm-hmm. um you know not to make light of it because it was a serious thing at the time and for me being only 18 years old it was it was shocking like really shocking um and like at you know back then like i hadn't lost a loved one or anything like that um mm-hmm. at that point in time and i wouldn't want to compare you know his death with the death of any other person because it would be crass but um you know but for me at the time like my 18 year old brain it was like i couldn't comprehend it it was just huge i mean i mean you you listened to these people and you know mistreated them like sort of like distant relatives because of how the closeness you had to them from the, the music standpoint well yeah and it's just like you don't you don't realize it now because nowadays like you don't hear the beatles on the radio anymore you don't see stuff on tv about them anymore but but back then it was just an immense amount of coverage like they Mm -hmm. were they were everywhere all over the place even though it had been 10 years since they had they had broken up like i remember after that happened that christmas driving up to um the my sister's farm up north and it was my dad my oldest sister linda and myself in the car mm-hmm. and the the song so this is christmas came on yep and my sister and i just started bawling our eyes out right yeah listening to that and my dad's like well we don't want to listen to this and he <laughs> like turns the channel <laughs> um but anyways uh, moving on from that a little bit, and I'm eventually going to get to the Lord of the Rings part here. <laughs> so at the same time that this kind of stuff was going on, like I mentioned, my friends and I at the time, like we were outside all the time, right? And we yeah. used to get into a bit of trouble, like all kids of that age, I would assume, right? Um, and we used to get into some stuff that would have got us into some pretty serious trouble if we ever got caught, mm-hmm. right? We never did anything really bad, but like I remember, back, I remember back then that like we spent a lot of time like running away from people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, of course, as we got older, we were like we we started driving, and we were we would be in in a, somebody's parents' car or whatever, yeah. you know. And of course, then of course, one night it happened. We were all we were all out. I don't know doing what, but like up to no good. And there was probably five or six of us in a car, mm-hmm. right? And we got pulled over by the cops. And, and so they, you know, out of all of us there, I was the only one that was eighteen because all my buddies were like a year younger than me, so they were pretty well all seventeen, right? right, right. So I was the only one officially an adult. In, mm-hmm. in Canada, anyways. Exactly. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I remember like sitting in the back of the police car, getting the getting the you know tenth degree <laughs> or whatever you call it, and and thinking to myself, just like, what the hell am I doing? You know, like mm-hmm. 
because this was regular. We never got caught, but this is the first time we ever got caught doing something we weren't supposed to be doing. And I was just like, oh my God. And I don't know what happened. Um, I can't remember exactly what was said or whatever. Um, And I don't know if it was just them deciding to give us a break or what, but they let us go anyways without anything more happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, after relieving us of our, like, sundry beverages and (laughs) and whatnot we were we were on our way and at that point i was just like there was a lot of relief um at that moment but it was it was really like what am i doing kind of kind of moment and it was i when i look back on it i just kind of remember that as the low point and it was right at that time um, while I was trying to sort of figure out what the hell I was going to do mm-hmm. and, you know, what was going on inside my head. And there was like a death of a few prominent figures that I knew um, that I read Lord of the Rings. And it was oh. just happened that one of my sisters had a copy of the book. And like I said, I was familiar with the book because I'd seen The Hobbit and I'd seen Lord of the Rings by then, I'm sure, mm-hmm. the animated version. So I knew what I was getting into. Um so I ended up reading the book and it was in January or February, January and February, probably 1981. And I just, I devoured the book like way more than any other book I'd ever read before. Just cause like I, I connected sort of with the characters mm-hmm. and the story more than anything I'd ever read before. Yeah. What I mean, what, I guess my question to you would be in that, in that situation is, have you read an author as prolific as Tolkien? Or Tolkien? As Tolkien? As Tolkien. Shut up. Well, yeah, I've read, I've read authors. Um, like I mentioned, Alexander Kent. Well, Alexander mm-hmm. Kent is his nom de plume. It's not even his real name. He, he writes under two, or he wrote, I can't remember if he's still alive or not. Mm-hmm. He wrote under two names. Um, and... He, he has way more books out than, than Tolkien ever published. Um, so, yeah, and I've read a lot of his stuff. So his stuff is really good. And, it was, and getting back to the, the Lord of the Rings, though, at the time, it just so happened. Like, I was in grade 13 at the time. And, mm-hmm. like, in Canada, we, ha- we used to have grade 13. Now it only goes up to grade 12. Yeah. And grade 13 used to be either... For if you were wanted to go to university, you had to take grade 13 mm-hmm. and you had to achieve a certain mark in order to whatever, get accepted into whatever university. Uh, but if you were a kid that had no idea what the hell you wanted to do with your life, you went to grade 13 because it was another year of high school. So I went to grade 13. But like usual, I was doing pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in English class, which was one of my bad subjects, um, we were going to do, there was no, there was no exam at the end of the semester. It was going to be essentially was a big book report, but it was like a long book report we had to write. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I remember my teacher, he handed out a list of books that were like eligible books for you to read. Right. Okay. And so guess which book I picked? I'm assuming Lord of the Rings. <laughs> right. Because I was already reading it, right? At the t- yeah. time. I was already probably halfway through reading it. 
So, um, so I picked that and I remember my teacher like looking at me like kissing, you know, saying, it's like, are you sure that's the book you want to read? You know, that's a, like a really long book, you know? And I'm like, nope, like I'm good. I've actually already started reading. And he says, all right, you know, sure. Like <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, so I wrote, I wrote my report on Lord of the Rings after finishing reading the book mm -hmm. and for the first time ever it was like such an easy thing for me to do to write that report mm -hmm. because like I loved what I was writing about right you know like up until then like couldn't stand English yeah right but in this case it was actually I really enjoyed the book loved writing the report and it just came so easily like writing it for mm -hmm. me um so anyways we eventually came to the last day of the semester and we got our reports back. Oh. And so it was like what he was doing was he would he would call out each person's name, you mm -hmm. know, like, you know, Joe Smith and Joe Smith would walk up to the front of the class and he would say, you know, whatever, B plus, good job, see you later. And he would leave because this is it. The course is over. Yeah, right? exactly. You're done after this. Um, so he would go through, he went through all of the class, all my classmates read their names and it was like 20 or 30 kids in the class probably. Mm -hmm. And he read all of their marks as they went up one at a time, got their paper, read their marks and every one of them, but me, he read. And I was the only person left sitting in the class in an empty class, just me and the teacher. <laughs> and he didn't call my name, but he knew he was, I was there because I seen him looking at me. Mm -hmm. So eventually it was like, okay. So I got up and, and, and I went up to the front, up to the desk, and like I could see my report. It was sitting right there. It was the only one left, mm -hmm. right? But it didn't have a mark on it. You know, because back then you get like the big red mark on the top of your yeah. paper, right? Was, there was no big red mark on the top of my paper. And uh, so he says, like he said to me, like, you know, did you read the book? And I'm like, yeah, I, I read the book. I love the book. And he's like, okay. And I can't remember exactly what he asked me, but he started asking me questions about the book. Mm. wonder if you plagiarized your report <laughs> yeah so it's like he, he didn't believe that i wrote the report right so like i answered all the questions that he asked one at a time and he could see that i like knew the answers because I'd, I'd i'd read the book yeah. and not only that but in fact i loved the book mm -hmm. right because he could tell the way i was i was i was answering the questions yeah. and like i'll never forget like at the time because he said he said well if you're anything like me you'll probably read this book every year for the rest of your life because that's what he does. He, he, re he read the book every year. Wow. Yeah. And at that point, he got out his red pen, yep. and on the top of my paper, he wrote A+. Plus. Woo! Yeah, and it's like, this is an excellent report, Don. And it's like, I'll never forget that moment in my life because it was the first A+, plus I, like I'd ever gotten in English ever, let alone sort of like the final exam equivalent, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things, you know, your parents, when you're a kid, they all say, you know, it's like, you, you, you should, you know what you're capable of if you only try, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, it was, it was kind of one of those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
anyway, so like that was it for me because like I ended up putting in an extra semester after that um, because like I thought, well, you know what, let's, I've done half the year, let's do the other half um, and see if I can like improve some of my marks, which I, I did. Like I approved some of my marks so that I had gotten bad grades in mm -hmm. and I ended up uh, applying to like a local college. I went to a local college for a two year program and at that college I'm in my very last month at that college, like I met my future wife. You know, I'm almost I'm getting close to 60 and like when i look back at it like reading lord of the rings and and writing that report is actually a specific moment in my life that i can remember mm -hmm. where it actually made a huge change a huge impact on on my future wow that's uh that's an impressive story and considering the lord of the rings uh, turned you around Sort of when you hit that proverbial low. Yeah, yeah. So it back. like what now that I like I I have that book like I always have that book. It sits right beside me, like you know where I sit downstairs in my chair. Mm -hmm. It's just like always <laughs> right beside me. So I'll pick it up and and leaf through it when when something comes up and I want to say what was that one part in the book and I like I look at it and now my my very well worn copy is uh, looking pretty rough around the edges well you need a new copy then <laughs> go out and get one with like uh, gold uh, you know bindings and the whole nine you know yeah I'll, I'll just keep my old dog-eared version it's still good <laughs> still good for another 20 years I guess probably yeah. <laughs> yeah so there you go that's my Tolkien beginnings that's uh, that's an impressive Tolkien beginnings. It's uh, far more impressive than what mine would be if I if I told you my story. <laughs> Which we oh, well, we got five minutes. Tell me tell me your story. We're good. We're good. Yeah, we're we're good. gonna stop okay, right okay. there. <laughs> and with that, we have come to the end of the episode with a very beautiful and lengthy discussion on Don's Tolkien beginnings and our fantastic Q&A with a little hint of things to come. Don, do you have any thoughts that you want to throw out there? Um, just I did, I did manage to get together with Chris and Garrett uh, yesterday for mm -hmm. a couple hours we had uh, uh, we're still we just went into lockdown here again um, just what was it Friday pretty I think much Friday um, and uh, so yeah everything is closed down again so to speak but we are still allowed to have outdoor gatherings of up to five people social distance blah 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 mm -hmm. so the three of us got together and had a couple hour visit which was really great it's been many many months since i've seen either of them and in the flesh so it was uh, good to have a chance to talk with them sorry you weren't able to make it up unfortunately group, uh, totally work, understandable work calls 24 7 <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah gets called to work on easter sunday good times good times it's called the grinch yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I know you listen to uh, Out of the Frying Pan podcast too, don't you? I do. I enjoy them. You do, Love yeah. them. 
Yeah, and I was surprised on their most recent episode, number 29, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. Stuart gave us a huge shout-out on on that podcast. He did. That was a surprise. Very generous. Really appreciate that. I was I was a little gobsmacked at it, you know. I said, "Oh, jeez, you know." I, I was like, was, "People are actually listening." People Who knew? are actually listening. That's right. Influential people are actually listening. Holy cow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was nice to hear. It's always nice to hear when uh, somebody says, "Hey, I'm listening and I'm enjoying it." Well, that's awesome. Exactly. I really appreciate you know, it. Uh, all the emails and the comments we get on our Facebook page and through Archaic North of the Shire podcast one at gmail.com quick plug uh, uh, all of those emails that we do get in even though we may not respond to you instantaneously we do read them and we do appreciate them you have no idea uh, we are doing this for you and uh, we're doing this to sort of I guess I thought we were doing this for us because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we can't play games no I don't think so I oh think no we're... no yeah we're doing it for them we're doing it for we're, the listeners. We're doing this to tell a story, you know, whether that story, that story could be anything, you know, that changes episode by episode. And uh, we hope that people listening find value in it, whether that's um, good tactical value or entertainment, whichever the case may be. And that's kind of why we're doing it. Yeah, let's change it up a little bit here and there. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of that, what are we doing on our next episode the next episode, we will be talking about the mobile army type. Ooh, the mobile. Mm-hmm. Very good. Going mobile. That's right. Going mobile. Song not by your, the Who. Not your phone. Mobile as no, in... No, Going Mobile is a song by The Who. Okay. Yeah. Let's get back to my roots. Okay. Okay. Well, I, well mobile is now... Uh, is I, 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 That's a new term or it's the, the considered term for cell phones is your mobile. Your mobile. That's right. So, all right. All right. Well, is that it, sir? I think so. We've, we've shown our age enough. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it is what it is, man. No, no sense in hiding it or pretending. That's true. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode here on North of the Shire.